Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Welcome to New Life. We're so glad you're here. I'm Pastor Chris, the lead pastor, and we're uh, in the third week of a four-week series called Get a Grip. And what we're talking about getting a grip on is this book, the Bible. For followers of Jesus, this book is the pattern of life for us. It's the daily guide for how we are to live. And uh, so far, what we've done in the first two weeks of the series is we've talked about the Old Testament. We're doing a big overview of the whole Bible over these four weeks. And so the first two weeks, we talked about Uh, Over the first week, we talked about the Law and the Prophets, and last week, the books of poetry. And what we said is, in all of those 39 books of the Old Testament, the the direction that's being pointed to is Jesus. Jesus is the focus of the Old Testament, even though he's not specifically mentioned by name there. But what we're going to see in these next two weeks, as we look at the 27 books of the New Testament in an overview fashion, is that Jesus is the focus of the New Testament. In fact, that's the take-home point for today. Everywhere we turn in the New Testament, Jesus is the focus. And uh, for those of you who don't know what a take-home point is because you're here for the first time, it's the one point that I'm going to make today uh, and that we're going to um, hopefully take out into, the, into our life this week. And we're going to pray about it, think about it, and live it out in the week ahead. Uh, if you want to follow along in the outline that's in the connection here, that was actually the first fill-in-the-blank. Everywhere we turn in the New Testament, Jesus is the focus. Uh, we're going to look at the book of uh, the, the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the book of Acts, and the book of Revelation. We're going to skip the letters of Paul and the other letters, um, and that's going to be the focus for next week as we close out this series. But today, we're going to look uh, at Jesus, how he is the focus, really, of everything in the New Testament uh, with those Gospels, the book of Acts, and the book of Revelation. Jesus isn't just the focus of the New Testament. Since his brief life on earth, he's really been the focus of history. In fact, I would say that Jesus is still the most important person in history. Now, I know there are people who doubt that, who don't believe that. In fact, there are people who don't even believe that Jesus lived. They think that Jesus was a legend. And uh, there's good reason for that. If you read the four gospels, what you will find out about Jesus is he was born of a virgin. Jesus performed miracles. And not just like, you know, he didn't just heal headaches and backaches. He took blind people and gave them the ability to see. He took deaf people and gave them the ability to hear. He took people with leprosy and healed them so that they were clean and whole. He even raised dead people to life. Jesus walked on water. He, ra- he, he calmed raging storms. He turned water into wine. He, he cast demons out of people. And most important of all, when they killed him, when they crucified him to try to get rid of him, he came back to life. And after he came back to life, he stayed on the earth uh, for 40 days, and then he went back to heaven, and he, uh, he's coming back. That's, that's, the, that's the belief that we have. And so here's the thing about Jesus. I'm gonna, I'm, you've probably heard this before, but people say that Jesus is either a legend or a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. And the reason people say that, that he's a legend is you know, pretty clear what we just said, what Jesus did If he didn't actually do those things, then he's a pretty good legend. I don't know any superhero that can do stuff better than that. But he's not a legend because he actually lived in history. That's that's a proven fact. The the next thing then, is Jesus a liar or a lunatic? And the reason we bring that up is, you know, many people say, well, Jesus isn't really Lord, but he's a good teacher. Jesus may be one of the best teachers that ever lived, but he's not really God. He's not really Lord. The truth is, if Jesus is not Lord, then he's not a good teacher. Because he said he was the son of God. 
He said that he was God. In fact, his disciples, after Jesus rose from the dead, the 11 remaining disciples, they traveled around uh, their, the known world of their day telling everybody that he was God, telling everybody that he had been sent by the God of the universe to pay this for, for the sins of humanity and that he was indeed God. And then there was this other guy named Saul. We might know him better as Paul. Same guy, just two different names. Saul is the, his Hebrew name and Paul is the... Hellenized or Greek version of Saul. But anyway, Saul wanted to, wanted to destroy the church. He thought Jesus was a liar. He thought Jesus was a fraud. Maybe a lunatic, but he knew that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah, the one that the Jews were waiting to come and, and establish Israel, uh, once again, as the central political uh, and actually every kind of center of the universe. So Saul was going around trying to destroy the early church. But one day, as Saul was seeking to do that, he was on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he was going to arrest Christians there and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be imprisoned or executed. And while he's walking, Jesus appeared to him in a vision and spoke to him. And, and Saul, from that incident, Saul changed. He was transformed from the inside out. And for the rest of Saul's life, he went around the known world of his day planting churches in the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has been seen as Lord by so many people. Actually, that, that experience of Paul, maybe not so dramatic, but that experience of being changed from the inside out has happened millions and millions and millions of times over, over the past 2,000 years. And so that's why we, as followers of Jesus, contend that he's not a legend, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, but he's Lord. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to examine from the four Gospels, the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, some teachings of Jesus and teachings about Jesus, because really what the New Testament is about is about Jesus, about his life, well, his birth, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his going back to heaven, and the promise of his coming again. And it's also about the early church that formed as a result of those beliefs. So we're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, but before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have your written word that reminds us of who you are and who Jesus is and, and who the Holy Spirit is, one God in three persons. And today I pray that your Holy Spirit would open each of our hearts, whether we're here in person or watching online, in our minds and our spirits, that we can receive your truth and not just receive it, but be transformed from the inside out by it, that we can experience Jesus as Lord in our lives. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So the Gospel of Luke is the third of the four Gospels, and the reason I'm turning there is because Luke is the only one of the four Gospel writers who tells us why he wrote. In fact, it says this in Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So Luke tells us that many people wrote Gospels, and that's true. You may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas, it's not in the Bible, the Gospel of Peter, not in the Bible, the Gospel of Judas, I was circulating a lot of, about a decade ago. Uh, everybody was asking, you know, is that really, is, is it true? And the answer is no. The Gospel of Judas and Thomas and Peter, they have some elements of truth, but they're not true because they don't pass the test 
that Luke put on himself, they weren't from the original uh, apostles or disciples. They were in the name of those original apostles and disciples because that would give them credibility. But, but the incidents that they record don't line up with what actually happened according to those first disciples and those first writers like Luke. Luke and Mark were not disciples. Matthew and John were. In fact, Mark is considered to be the earliest gospel written. And the reason we, we think that is because Matthew and Luke contain most of Mark. And actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, which means seen together, because they have a similar chronology and, and a similar listing of the teachings and miracles of Jesus. John is very different, because John was written last, probably a long time after the other three, when John was an old, old man. And he wrote to fill in some of the theological blanks that were left out by the teachings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so as, as Luke tells us, he wrote to this man named Theophilus, and, and he gives him the title of honorable or excellent, depending on which translation of the English you use. And excellent or honorable was a title given to Roman officials in that day. And so Luke was apparently writing to a Roman official because he wanted that Roman official to be certain that what he had learned about Jesus was true. And so I want to underline this point, that the gospel writers wrote to inform not to deceive, and they wrote to ensure the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension would be preserved for future believers. It's likely that they would have written their accounts sooner, but they thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. When Jesus returned to heaven, he said to them, I'm coming back soon. I'm coming back soon. Now, if I said to you, hey, I got to go here, but I'll be back soon, you would assume I'd be coming back in your lifetime, right? Well, that's because we're human beings, but Jesus is an eternal being. He's God. So he is coming back soon by his standard, but not by ours. And so, so far, soon has been 2,000 years. It could be 3,000 years for all we know, but we know that Jesus is coming back soon. And, and so as the, as the gospel writers got older, they realized, whoa, maybe he meant soon, soon like in godly terms. And so we better write this stuff down so we can pass it on to future generations in case Jesus doesn't come back. And so let's turn now to John's gospel. We're going to skip from Luke to John, and we're going to see how he started his account. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke, which had an account of Jesus' birth at the beginning of their gospels, and unlike Mark, who started when Jesus was an adult, just beginning his ministry, Luke, I mean, John does something incredible. He starts off by telling us Jesus is God. Now, we wouldn't know that unless we understood a little bit about the Greek language in which John wrote. In the Greek language in which John wrote, Jesus is called the Word, or logos is the Greek word, logos. And logos in Greek philosophy was the divine reason that undergirds the whole universe. It's basically what caused the universe to come into being. It's what it holds the universe together. And so what John says at the very beginning is Jesus is God, and, and he's the divine ordering principle behind everything. That's an incredible statement to make about a human being. Once again, we go back to that beginning idea of Jesus being either Lord or a liar or a legend or a lunatic. But anyway, let's see what John says. He says, in the beginning was the Word. That's the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not John the writer of the gospel. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in, the, in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We could invest weeks on that single passage of scripture. We really could. But I want to make two key points from those 14 verses. Number one, John shows us that Jesus is God. And that is a pivotal belief among followers of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is both human and God. No one else has ever made that claim as convincingly as Jesus. I've been here as you know, the lead pastor of the church for 17 years, and if I stood up here this morning and said, I am God, none of you would believe it, especially if you've known me for more than like three minutes, right? Um, but, but when Jesus made the claim, it was convincing because of the things that he was able to do and, and the things that ultimately have transpired since. And, and you got to remember, when John wrote this, Jesus had returned to heaven and the Holy Spirit had come and the church had you know, exploded in growth all over um, the Middle East at that point. The second thing I want to point out is that it says Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, in the Old Testament, the most important matter of the Old Testament was the law of Moses. It was a covenant that God made with the people of Israel. It was a covenant of law. We could say a covenant of truth. There were more than 600 of these truths that were given to the Israelites that would establish them as God's people. If they did the things that God said to do and didn't do the things that God prohibited, then they would be seen as God's people and they would be blessed. But here's the problem. Nobody ever did everything God said to do. Nobody could do everything God said to do. So truth without Grace brings judgment. Truth without grace brings judgment. And we all have felt that judgment, haven't we? When we, we, we broke the rules, and, and so when we break the rules, we feel judged. But when Jesus came along, what Jesus did is he fulfilled all the rules. He did everything right. He never sinned. He never broke the law of Moses. And so he was able to die in the place of each of us. We owed God our, our lives. The death penalty was on us because of our sin, because we had broken that, that law, that truth. And so what happened is when Jesus came, he fulfilled it, and so he could stand in our place through his grace. Now, here's the thing. We live in a culture that doesn't want to have any truth, that doesn't want to have any law. Let, let's just all get along. Let's all just do whatever we want, and whatever I believe is okay, whatever you believe is okay, let's just all say everything's good. So that's sort of grace without truth, right? And grace without truth leads to license. The only kind of life that makes sense in the long term, and when I say long term, I mean for this life and for eternity, is grace and truth. In fact, what, what I would want us to underline here at the, at the close of this particular section is grace and truth bring us hope-filled and meaningful lives. A life under the law is a life of judgment. A life without any truth is a life of license and neither lead us to meaning and purpose. But when we put grace and truth together, which Jesus did, that brings a life of hope and a life of meaning and purpose. I, I, I'd like to say a lot more about that, but we're trying to offer an overview of all of Jesus' you know, life and ministry through the gospel. So let's turn to another gospel, the gospel of Mark. We're hitting the third one of the four. And in the gospel of Mark, in chapter 8, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, verse 27, it says this. 
Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So here, Jesus challenges his disciples to step out from the crowd. I mean, the crowds were following Jesus, and the reason they followed Jesus is because of all the miracles he did, and he fed thousands of people with just a little bit of resource. And so everybody loved Jesus. I mean, all the crowds were following him. But what Jesus wanted to know with these 12 guys that were ultimately going to be bringing his message to the world, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. Now, all the Old Testament prophets had pointed to the Messiah, but the thing is, the Old Testament prophets thought the Messiah was coming one time and that he was going to establish a political kingdom where Israel would be in the center of everything, would be the great world power that they were back when King David was the king. But the first time Jesus came, that was not his purpose. That was not his goal. In fact, the first time Jesus came, he came to bring salvation to the world. That was something that the Jews in general didn't understand and the disciples didn't understand because Jesus did not look like the Messiah that most people saw from reading of the prophets. But when you look at some of the other prophets, Isaiah in particular, who talked about a suffering servant, then that's the Messiah that Jesus is and was the first time he came and he will come again is a conquering king. So Jesus often set himself at odds with the religious leaders of Jesus of his own day because they saw the Messiah in this political model, and Jesus wasn't fulfilling that model. And so there were two major groups of religious leaders. There were others, but the two major ones were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were constantly trying to trap Jesus into saying something based on the law which would prove he was not the Messiah. So let's look at one of those incidents. It's in Matthew chapter 22, starts in verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply. So before this, the Sadducees had come to Jesus asking about a woman who had had seven different husbands. They all had died in order. I guess she was a bad cook. I don't know. But anyway, um, the question was, when she died and went to, to heaven, then whose wife would she be since she was married to seven different guys? And Jesus' answer, based on scripture, was, you all don't get it. Because in, 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 in heaven, we're not married or given in marriage, but we're like angels. Like angels, we don't become angels. We're like angels. And then he talked about how God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God. So there, anyway, the point is, there is an afterlife. The Sadducees didn't believe that anything happened. After we die, that's it. We're just dead. So they didn't believe in the resurrections, which is why they were sad, you see. Okay, so anyway, the Pharisees were another group. They believed in the resurrection and angels and all that, but they didn't like Jesus. And so here's what happened with them. One of them, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So what Jesus just said is the whole Old Testament is summed up in love God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Those answers actually came from the Torah, so the Pharisees couldn't find any fault with Jesus' answer. But the problem with the Pharisees was their understanding of love was too restricted, and their understanding of neighbor was too restricted. You see, for a Pharisee, a neighbor was another Pharisee. 
that was it. If you were just a general Jew, you weren't really a neighbor because you didn't follow the law the right way. And so their understanding of neighbor was restricted and their understanding of love was very restricted. And what Jesus was going to do, in fact, Jesus would show that his love was for all people and that the neighbor included the people of every nation. Jesus' understanding of love is that God loves all people and that my neighbor and your neighbor is every person on this planet. And we see that most clearly in Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew. These words take place after Jesus died, rose again, and was getting ready to go back to heaven. And we call them the Great Commission. And we find them in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, where we read, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee. The reason eleven is because Judas had hanged himself, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you may have noticed there that it said that some of the 11 doubted that it was Jesus. And it's easy for us to say, how could they doubt? I mean, he's standing right there. But here's a question. How many of you have seen anybody who ever rose from the death dead after being brutally murdered? Anybody? Anybody ever seen anybody who rose from the dead? You see, it's not common for people to rise from the dead. And at first, they, they just couldn't, they couldn't wrap their mind around the idea that this is really Jesus. As he said, he, he had told them over and over and over again, when I die, I'm coming back again. But when they actually saw him, it was hard to believe. But then Jesus said this. He said, I... I'm sending you to make disciples of all the nations. And that's really the point that every person on the planet, number one, deserves to hear the good news that we're talking about today, deserves to hear about Jesus, the Lord and Savior of all people, and that all people everywhere, that they're all our neighbors. And so Jesus changes the understanding of our minds about who God is. God is a all-loving, all-caring God, and, and, and about who we are. We are to reflect him in our lives with each other. And whether each other is right here or whether each other is, is a person in, in any other country, any other place in the world. So in the early church, after Jesus ascended back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, what happened in the early church was incredible because the people who followed Jesus were like Jesus. They had similar power and authority because he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he basically said, I'm giving it to you. And so there's an incident in Acts. We're going to look at it right now. Peter and John, two of the disciples, went to the temple to pray. And they saw this lame beggar. He, he couldn't walk, and, and he was reaching out his hand for alms, for, for an offering, because that's the only way he could live. And it was, a, it was, a, it was a, an acceptable way for a, a person who was paralyzed to, to live by, by taking offerings from people that, that were okay. And so Peter and John come up, and, and they, they said, look at me. Now, this guy's thinking, all right, I'm going to get some coins. But Peter says, silver and, and gold I don't have. But what I have, I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And this guy jumps up, and it says he went leaping and walking and praising God. His life was transformed in an instant, just like that. And all this crowd starts gathering around because everybody had seen this guy begging for years and years and years. And now there he is. He's walking around, jumping around, praising God. And so Peter starts preaching about Jesus, and the religious leaders hear about it. And they don't like, the, they don't like Peter and John any better than they like Jesus. 
And so they actually arrested Peter and John and put them in prison. It's evening, and I think they put them in prison overnight to let them think about what they had just done. And do you really want to go to jail every time you talk about this guy? So here's what happened. It says, the next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice the Holy Spirit fills him in that instant, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Doesn't really make sense. You know, we healed a guy, he couldn't walk, now he can walk. What's the problem? We're not seeing the issue here. And then it says, do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter and John were unashamed to stand in front of that group or any group of people and to say that Jesus Christ was God, that he was Savior, that he was Lord. In fact, what they said was that Jesus' name is the only means of salvation. There aren't a hundred ways to heaven. There's one. That's what they were saying. And, and the religious leader said, look, you've got to stop saying this. You've got to stop talking about this. You can't mention that name anymore. And Peter and John said, look, do you think we're going to listen to you or are we going to listen to God? And, and what happened is the Jews set themselves against the Christians and the Romans set themselves against the Christians and the Christians continued to speak up for Jesus as Lord. And in fact, in the early church, the witnesses of Jesus were often killed. And, and, and the Greek word for witness is martyr. The Greek word for witness is martyr because so many people who talked about Jesus in that day were killed um, for their faith but they continue to remain faithful. So, the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, what does it talk about? It talks a lot, a lot of bad stuff. A lot of bad stuff is going to happen on the earth. Last night, I was, so, I was trying to say wicked and evil, and I got, got it mixed up, and I said weevil. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of weevil in the world, and there is a lot of weevil in the world, right? Um, there's a lot of that going around. And, and what it says is it's going to be more wicked and evil than we can even imagine. If you think it's wicked and evil now, wait, just wait. Because when the fullness of God's wrath is cast out onto the earth, it's going to be terrible. And the people who are still there who believe in Jesus, it's going to be awful for them. But that isn't the final word of the book of Revelation. The final word of the book of Revelation is, and then Jesus comes back. And then Jesus comes back. And for those who trust Jesus, Savior and Lord, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible. In fact, here's what it says. In Revelation chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. 
All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. I always read that passage at funerals because I want to remind us that for those who trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, the end of this life isn't the end. The end of this life is actually just the beginning of a life that goes on forever with Jesus Christ. This life can be amazingly difficult or it can be amazingly blessed. And sometimes it's both at the same time. But whatever this life is like, at the end of this life, there is more. And, and the point of, of Revelation chapter 21 that we just read is not just that it's more, but the relationship that we have with God is incredible. It's, in fact, what it says is, in the new, in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth belong to God's children. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Romans. I don't want to go there because that's a letter. I'll, I'll wait for next week for that. But, but you, there, it's all tied together, right? And, and so when we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we will one day sit around a banquet table with him, our Heavenly Father, as brothers and sisters with people from all over the world. So the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the only one who offers hope for today and forever. And so here's today's commitment. I will make Jesus my primary focus this week. I will make Jesus my primary focus this week. Actually, that's a commitment for the rest of our lives, right? I will make Jesus my primary focus today, tomorrow, and every day he gives me. Now, that can only happen if Jesus is Lord in our lives, owner. If he is Savior, if we have trusted him to take away the sin of our life and to give us this new life that happened to Paul, that happened to the disciples, that happened to millions and millions and millions of people down through history, if it's never happened to you, today would be the day to make that the case, to make Jesus Lord by surrendering. That's all we can do. I mean, that's all we have to do. It's a good news. We, we don't have to do anything. All we have to do is surrender ourselves into the Lordship of Jesus Christ to confess that he isn't a lunatic, he isn't a liar, he isn't a legend, but he's Lord. And he will come in and he will take over and our lives will become new and fresh. And that's just the beginning. And it's a struggle for all of us. But as we struggle through surrendering more and more and more day by day by day, and he becomes more and more Lord of our lives, our lives reflect him more and more. Now, many times in the first two weeks of this series, I gave you some reading to do during the week. Remember, we read Genesis 1 to 12 the first week. We read Proverbs 1 to 7 and Psalm 1 to 7 last week. Well, this week, I want to simply say this. Many times when people become new believers, they say to me, where should I start reading in the Bible? Where should I start? And, and you'll get a lot of answers from pastors, but I always say you should start in the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel. It only has 16 chapters. In fact, if you started reading Gospel of Mark today, it's the 18th, right? Um, if you started reading today, you read one chapter a day till the end of the month. You'd have to read four chapters on the last day of the month. And then on April 1st, you start reading again, read 16 chapters, one, two, three, through the first 16 days. Then on the 17th, start again. And you do that for a few months until this happens. Until the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is like imprinted in your mind. So that you can just think, like in, in Mark 1, what's in Mark 1? In Mark 1 is, is the story of, of John the Baptist and, and actually the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then in Mark 2 and so on. You know, there's the, in Mark 2 is the, par, is the story about the paralytic and some other things, the call of Levi. But you start to know the stories of Jesus' life. 
And they have to get in your head before they can change your life. In fact, I, I want to give a little illustration uh, bef- in closing today. This book is the truth. And Jesus said, the truth, when we know it, will set us free. So in order to know the truth, what has to happen? It has to move from here to here. That's what has to happen first. We have to know the truth, and so we have to move it from here to here. And then from here, it has to move to here. It has to move from our head to our heart. There are a lot of people who know that Jesus Christ is Lord. They know it in their head, but they haven't believed it in their heart. And as we're going to talk about on Easter, it's not until we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead that we're saved. And so then it goes from here to here, and then here's the hardest one, to there, out there, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we go. Wherever we go, when it goes from here, from here to here, to here, to there, that's when the world changes. That's Jesus' plan. I don't know if you realize that, but the the plan is simple. It's a good plan that we get transformed by the truth here to here, and then we go out and we share the truth with our neighbors. Who's our neighbor? Everybody. So that all of our neighbors get to know the truth too, and and they get to know the truth, and then it goes to here, and then it goes to there. And then ultimately, ultimately, all of us who are in that same family will one day be with Jesus forever. I look forward to today as much as I look forward to that day. The reason is because he's still working on me. (laughs) There's a lot of work still to do. But as that truth comes in here and goes down here, I have more and more opportunity to help me in my family, in my workplace, everywhere, um, for people to know there is a God who has a son named Jesus. And that Jesus is the focus of history. He's the focus of the New Testament. He's Lord and Savior of all. He's the only hope for our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you loved us so much that when we rejected you, you sent Jesus. Thank you that you love us so much that you didn't just take out the punishment that we deserved on us, but you took it out on Jesus so that we can have a new life. God, we thank you that with all the evil we see in the world, we know that the ultimate reality is your life, your truth, your grace, your love. And so today I pray for any who trusted you for the very first time that they would continue to surrender day by day to you, to your son Jesus, and to live in the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for all of us who have done that, that we would continue to surrender to you and and to let your Holy Spirit live in in, in us so that other people will get to experience what it is to be a child of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.